Hello! Welcome to the ABC edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. We have so much material to deal with this week. We are going to talk about ABC.XYZ, a.k.a. Alphabet, a.k.a. Google. We are going to talk about Uber. We are going to talk about Manchester City Football Club. We, by the way, is me, Felix Salmon of Axios, and Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. And we are going to talk about not only all of these things, but also in a lively Slate Plus discussion, poor Argentina being picked on by Donald Trump and what it has to do with the price of soybeans, <laughs> which I promise is more interesting than it sounds, especially if you manage to make it through the lively numbers round where we will talk about the greatest TV ad that has appeared on Twitter in the past three weeks. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Now I know my ABCs. <laughs> the official URL, if you want to find Alphabet on the Internet, is abc.xyz. That makes sense. That's their, That's where their blog is. Or it's also at google.blog. But google.blog is just for Google. abc.xyz is for the parent company, which is Alphabet, because they're all quirky. And they put out letters from Larry and Sergey, who are always referred to by their first names, and we're all on first name terms with Larry and Sergey. The boys, the as boys. they're known, even though they're 46. Exactly. The boys who needed adult supervision. Do you remember that? Yes. And the boys put out this cute little email with, two exclamation points at the end of paragraphs because that's how, like, you know, relatable they are. Saying, hey, we don't really need to run this place anymore. We can just let Sundar take over. And isn't it all just, like, friendly? And we aren't running a, you know, trillion-dollar global mega behemoth company that basically controls everything that you do in every aspect of your life. Including your new Fitbit, Felix. Including my new Fitbit, <laughs> which they now own. And all of the data about my sleep goes to Fitbit. And they say it doesn't go to Google because maybe they're two different companies or something. As I wrote in my newsletter this week, they have so many subsidiaries. Like, I literally lost count of how many CEOs there are within Alphabet. But so the interesting thing I thought with this news was... So um, first, what is the news? 
Uh, oh, yeah. The news is the boys are riding off into the sunset on their segways, as Matt Levine put it. They are leaving day-to-day operations at the company, which they were already half yeah. out of anyway because they had created essentially this whole umbrella alphabet thing just so they could focus on the fun things they wanted to do and leave like the Google business to the Sundar. The stuff that actually makes and money. Google and YouTube, I mean, 90% of the business is Google. And then I think I might even be less it's, than it's 10%. More, it's more 0.3% of the profits yeah. are not Google. So they were basically oh, wait, just... there are bits of not Google that make profits? Apparently. Wow, who knew? I mean, Google I, I thought includes were... YouTube, which is yeah, like... Yeah, but they're mostly... Well, basically, I think the idea is that... Maybe con- revenue. <laughs> the consumer-facing stuff which is linked to your Google account. So that would be Google, Gmail, Google Maps, YouTube. You know, all of that is all part of Google. And then Waymo is entirely separate, which is the self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. Calico is entirely separate, which is like, we will make medical breakthroughs that make you live forever. And all of these other random bits and pieces. I'm not sure about Nest. Nest is separate as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit, well, it's extremely confusing. It was done for reasons which no one entirely understood in the first place. Well, I think one reason would be the two guys that are leaving. Larry they, and Sergey. Who, by the way, can be... I just say that, like, in terms of riding off on their segways, like, they both have a <laughs> private 747 with, like, a king-size bed in it. Like, they're riding off in their private Right, of jets. course. Yeah. Um, and, like, of course they don't want to run Google. It's, like, a big, complicated company that's boring. It's not and what it's they also, started with, which was an also, exciting search company that was going like to, quote-unquote, change. Right? It's being tech lashed right. from within, even. Like, Google's employees, I feel like, are one of the most vocal group of tech workers out there right now. I mean, there there's some that were fired that are threatening to go to the NLRB with complaints. There I mean, were they, walkouts. There, these walkouts. there were complaints about uh, Project Firefly, which was Google's attempt to do a search engine in China. Mm-hmm. So now they're like, Sundar, you get all of this. Sundar exactly. gets all of it. And yeah, why would they, if you had, uh, that's one of the great mysteries of the billionaires. Why do they keep their jobs? Just go. Take take your segways well, that's what and they're your doing. Right. So they're finally doing the right thing. But they're also thing. keeping their Class oh, yeah. B stock. Right. Right. So they also still get to control the company. Right. Right. The they best still sit of all on the possible board worlds. and they control the stock and they're basically Sundar's bosses still. They are, they, yeah, they control the board. They can hire and fire Sundar at will. He doesn't, he ostensibly reports to the board, but in reality, he reports to Larry and Sergey because they control the board. They have over 50% of the votes between them. Um, I, I did the math for my newsletter and it works out that. Larry alone has $51 billion worth of Alphabet shares. And on average, his shares have five votes each. And Sundar is not exactly poor. He has $100 million worth of Alphabet shares. Um, But his shares have on average 0.07 votes each. Wow. So he has to do all the work, (laughs) but uh, doesn't get the votes. It seems in a way like he's, I mean, I I don't want to say he's getting the short end of the stick. At the end of the day, he's running Google. And he is making like nine figures. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, as Google is becoming, is coming under more scrutiny, and he is going to more and more have to be the face. And now, granted, he already essentially was, but there was always the thought that, you know, you could still kind of lug the other guys in. And now that's going to be a lot harder. So now tech CEO used to be like a cool job, right? They like the boys back in the day, they got to 
do cool stuff, don't be evil, bop around on sexually harass people, (laughs) sexually harass whoever they want. No one cared. And now tech CEO is just like any other CEO. No, but but the thing which is cool, you know, that whole thing about, you know, a million dollars isn't cool. You know what cool is, is is a billion dollars. Being a tech CEO isn't cool. Being a tech founder is cool because the thing that Larry and Sergey have, which no one else has, is zero accountability. <laughs> there is literally no way in which anyone can hold them accountable for anything that happens at Alphabet, despite the fact that they control the company. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and, and it's also like, I mean, what you're saying, I mean, it's a sign of kind of an end of an era, I think. I mean, we're getting a lot of these signs, but like, you know, tech is maturing and it's becoming just a normal, incredibly dominant industry. So it's unsurprising that you're going to have slightly more boring people running it. And Google isn't even a tech company in a lot of ways now. Like Matt Levine pointed out, it's an advertising company. It's always been a media company. And we are entering a crazy election cycle where a bunch of fraught questions over political advertising and misinformation and all of that are going to be swirling. And Sundar's going to be at the center of that. And... The New York Times had a huge investigation a few months ago about YouTube, which is probably one of the most powerful vectors for misinformation on planet Earth. And no one's really grappled with that within Alphabet. And because of the structure, we don't even, YouTube doesn't even have to tell us very much about itself. It tells us nothing. We know, we literally know nothing about YouTube's financials because of the way, as you say, Alphabet is structured. It is considered not material at an alphabet level, which is probably bullshit. That um, is a huge but it was also, according to a letter to the SEC, they said, yeah, we don't break out the YouTube financials because Larry doesn't look at them, <laughs> um, which I'm sure he didn't. Um, but now they can't use that excuse anymore because they can't say that Sundar doesn't look at them because Sundar's still running Google. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see whether we see the YouTube financials because by all accounts, by all estimates, YouTube as a standalone company would be one of the, what, 40 biggest companies yeah. in America. I mean, they should probably just spin it off. Warren should get in there and break that stuff They sh- I mean, Google should. So, okay, so I've never heard Anna be in charge of, like, breaking up tech giants <laughs> oh, yeah. before. Why should they spin out well, YouTube? I mean, it, it would have a, a, just, like, it would have a higher value on its own. And B, if you're thinking about, like, right now, they're going to be having to deal on the Google level with all of this kind of anti-tech regulatory issues. And then they're also going to be having to deal with that on the YouTube level. It just seems like, why do they need that extra headache? I think it would be better for Google, and I think it would be better for YouTube. I think Google has... I think both companies in, are better off. In terms of tech lash, Google has it at the employee level, but at the at the public level, the outrage is more fueled towards YouTube. So if they did separate, I think at the public no? level, it's, it's more towards Amazon, to be honest. Like, I, I don't think that Google has faced nearly the level of public opprobrium that it has, that, that matches with the, you know, media Twitter obsession with privacy issues and misinformation and that kind of stuff. But just you wait. At the YouTube level, like, the coverage has been really negative. The I coverage mean, has been the, bad, the, yes. The pedophilia stuff on YouTube, Alex Jones stuff, the misinformation, all the lunatics, you know, that are getting tons of money through YouTube. I, I feel like the potential, the media coverage has been really bad and the potential for public backlash is there. I just haven't seen any pub... The, the tech clash hasn't made its way to the general public really for anyone, but it did a little bit with Uber with 
delete Uber. It did a little bit with Amazon, I think. I really don't think it has with Google. Not yet. And in general, it really hasn't made its way from press coverage into the general public. I think when How would you define that? When people like Elizabeth Warren comes out and says, I want to break up the tech giants, I don't see that as a huge applause line where like the Pennsylvania crowds are going to be like, yeah, break up the tech (laughs) giants. It's not something which is that important to them. That's fair. I mean, the companies you just mentioned, I feel like there's an acknowledgement, and I may be extrapolating from my own life, that, that these companies are doing lots of bad stuff, invading your privacy, yada, yada, yada. But like we need them. Like I really need that Google search and the and the maps. I need it. And right. uh, and and Amazon is quite convenient. And Uber works really well. You know, these are like they've made their way into our daily lives in a way that's hard to extricate. Right. So people might complain about them, but they're not going to stop using Google. No. And I think and this is one of the things which really annoys me is that when people start talking about how to deal with the antitrust issues in big tech, there's a lot of backlash against that from Silicon Valley saying. But people love it and they still continue to use it and they're not deleting Facebook. And it's like, it's not on the individual to do these things. It's not on individuals to stop using these services. And in fact, if you broke up these services, if you did spin off YouTube from Alphabet, like no one would expect people to stop using YouTube. It would just stop making Alphabet such a large and powerful company because it would face competition from YouTube instead of owning YouTube. I mean, they're almost like, public utilities and that you I mean you need you need Google you need your electric company to work I need my cable company which everyone hates their cable company but you continue to use cable right I mean they just need to be regulated they're that important so let's talk about the most evil one of all which is Uber dun 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 Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Emily. I have a lot to say. You had (laughs) advanced... An advanced copy of this report. Yes, I did. So I was skimming through 84 pages trying to work out what this report was saying. But you've been looking at these 84 pages for how long? Like a few, all week. All week. Yeah. So what are the 84 pages and what do they say? So what Uber has done, it's put out a safety report, includes data on three things that most companies never, ever, ever, ever talk about. Sexual assault, traffic fatalities, and deaths from physical assault, which includes murder. So I'm here, and I know this would seem crazy to listeners, but like, this is good. Uber did a good thing. Transparency mm -hmm. is Transparency is what everyone is asking these companies to do. And the numbers that they put out, my story really focused on sexual assault. When you consider the scale of the platform, they're not big. They're just not. There was fewer than 500 rapes, or what Uber calls non-consensual sexual penetration, which is actually a more expansive definition than rape than you would find in most states. But that's across 2.2 billion rides, which is like 0.0002%. And of those non-consensual sexual penetrations, you know, some of those were of the drivers themselves. So, uh, So, I mean, one of the things that jumped out to me from this report is that 
to a first approximation, the the riders and the drivers seem to be victims in roughly equal measure. Like if you look at the what did they call them? This is um, fatal physical assaults. They don't use the word murder. They use the term <laughs> fatal physical assaults. If you look at the fatal physical assaults over the past two years, there were eight riders and seven drivers. Yeah. So it kind of splits 50-50. I mean, the sexual assault is more weighted towards the riders, but there are a lot of drivers who are suffering well, this as well. It's interest- what really interested me and was the way Uber went about counting sexual assault because no no company has like, done this, or if they have, they have never talked about it. And no one knows what sexual assault is. Like, the president's been accused of it. Joe Biden's been accused of it. We think it's rape, but it's also, like, pats on the ass. Like, no one knows. So what Uber did was, like, work with these, like, um, with experts in the field of sexual violence to come up with this massive taxonomy of 21 terms of sexual misconduct and sexual assault, going from, like, leering all the way up to rape before it even got to the point where it could count what was going on. It's much more expansive definition. So I actually felt, like, defensive of them today because people are coming out and being like, this is shocking. This is a scandal. And at the bottom line, it's it's about 6,000 reports. So th- they're not all, they may not all be true. They're reports, right? These are just things customers right. But I mean, reported. like, the, well, the, the dead 000. people are true. They're, they're, yes, they're the, truly the dead. The dead people and... are true. But, like, go to Walmart. How many people have died at Walmart right. in the past two years? I would bet you it's more and they have fewer users. Like, all Uber is is, I mean, they were bad with safety, you know, during the Travis time. And if, I bet if you looked really far back at the data, it would be much worse, I would think. So this is the big question I have about the report. There was actually a thing at the very beginning report. I didn't make it quite to the end, but there was a letter at the beginning <laughs> saying, quote, we know that reporting goes up when people know how to report and feel that their reports will be taken seriously. Yes. So The so, advocates so, talked a, a yeah, lot so, about this. So, so the big question for me is, as Uber puts out this report, presumably every year from here on in. Every two years. Every two years from here on in. How are we going to be able to judge whether it's improving or not? It's it's going to be really hard. <laughs> and, and- so when you say that things have improved since the Travis era, like it's really hard to find any quantitative data. For all that there's a million numbers in this and there's lots of, you know, assaults per 100 million vehicle miles traveled and all of these kind of, you know, metrics... I don't know and I can't see anywhere in here that Uber has found any way of judging whether it's getting better or whether it's getting worse. Well, but I I would probably argue that the fact that they're putting this out is a sign that the company itself is getting better, just in the sense that they're taking this seriously. Because, you know, as we're talking about this, you know, Emily, as you say, if you put these numbers in context, they're really, really small. They're not that small. I mean, nine murders is nine, nine one year. But you like, have to put it in context. Compare to what happens on public transit. Compare to what happens in taxis. Compare it to what happens in many, many other places. Literally Walmart but again. The, <laughs> right. And the whole point, though, is just this kind of conversation shows it. There's almost only downside to Uber for doing this. So why do you think they're doing it? I mean... I think they're doing it because they had to, because the new, like every time something happened, it got massive publicity in a way that most companies do not get. And they promised to do it. So they had to. I think they're the advocates that work with them are hoping other companies do it and use the taxonomy to actually define this. Right. They they open source the taxonomy, right? And And they're like, they're like, you know, their their PR person's like, you have to call the airlines, you have to call hotels, like they need to do this too. And they've been going out and like talking to other companies and trying to get them to do it too. And like, that would be great because it's my suspicion working on these kinds of issues that 
most companies aren't that much better. It's just right. that Uber has such massive scale if, 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 that there are numbers here. If Uber comes in and says, here's our open source taxonomy and methodology, we've done all of the heavy lifting to create this taxonomy and methodology. Now anyone can use it. And if other people use it, then we can start getting apples to apples comparisons between companies and mm -hmm. try and get a feel for which companies are better and worse. I mean, in principle, I... I kind of half see it. In practice, I don't believe we're ever going to get there because there will always be differences in terms of how easy it is to report. I, and a lot of this is just going to be a function of how easy it is to report these things. I mean, if you die in Walmart, you go to the police. You don't go to Walmart. You right. Know? I mean, a lot right, of people about— Right, but if you get about... raped in Uber, you don't go to Uber. You go to the police. Some people still just go to Uber because a lot of people don't report rapes. Fair. But one thing people talked about was— the. Cleary Act, which requires colleges who get, you know, public funding to report crime statistics, and part of that is rape and whatnot. And there are some colleges that put out their statistics, and they claim to have zero sexual assaults, right? which everyone knows is absolute right. bullshit. They do everything in their power to get that number to be zero, like not listening like, to Do they people, have no students? Head <laughs> in the sand, everything. So the appeal of the taxonomy getting used by everyone is that you don't have that situation. Right. But maybe, I mean, in this day and age, aren't these kinds of things a material risk? Like, isn't there an argument to be made that public companies should have to report this stuff? No, I mean, it's interesting. It kind of goes into the ESG conversation, because that's always what you hear when you talk with people in ESG, is that the data is so bad, that everybody measures these things in different ways. And you hear people saying, we need better standards, we need better standards. And granted, we don't have those standards yet, but this could be one more thing where there's a push to say, we have to have more uniform standards, that it's not a choice. You're going to have to report this kind of data. So, yeah, and, and one of the things which just jumps out at me f at this report is the way in which, as a society, we and every other country in the world does an incredibly good job at ignoring traffic deaths. There were like 35 pedestrians got killed in Uber crashes, basically, over the past two years, which is a lot of people dead on the road. And that's tiny compared to the total number of pedestrians who died every two years and we you know it's it's really really hard to find people who take this issue seriously weirdly mike bloomberg takes this issue very seriously but like it's in general it's hard and the reason it's hard is because you look at it and you're like christ you know 35 people have been di have died in uber crashes and i wouldn't want to run an, a company that was responsible for 35 people dying but on some level maybe i can kind of believe them if they tell me that if Uber hadn't been on the road, that number would actually be higher? I mean, a couple of things. First, they looked at their data and compared it to, you know, overall the NHTSA data. Mm -hmm. And uh, they claim that their traffic fatality rate is half regular because they have older drivers and, and, and newer, newer cars, cars which yeah. I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. And then the second thing that what you were saying made me think of, Felix, is there's this like really good on the media episode all about pedestrian fatalities being a direct result of like public policy and how, totally. you know, there's nowhere to cross the street mm -hmm. and like you just need to cross yeah. the street. This is a government like, issue. Walk this a mile. We don't put this on. We shouldn't put this on companies. Right. I mean, I feel like we should I should definitely say that like. It's awful that 6,000 people were sexually assaulted during Uber rides and that there were murders. Like, this is all of bad course, yeah. and that there were fatalities. But, yeah, it's I think public policy with those pedestrian deaths. Absolutely. But let me ask you one thing, Emily, which is the 
other huge question, which I had reading this report, I don't know if you asked Uber about this, which is the majority of Uber's business is outside the US. And there's nothing in this report about going, and the majority, by far the majority of the most egregious reports of rapes and murders and stuff is outside the US. And they don't seem to mention that at all. They didn't. All they said to me about that was like, we couldn't do this globally because the taxonomy is diff- would be different in different cultures. Why would the taxonomy be different? Because things that are considered inappropriate in the U.S., like like they counted unwelcome, non-consensual kissing of a non-sexual body part, which is like kisses on the cheek. They counted that, for example, right. as sexual assault. And I think it's like the, the first category. And like if you're in Europe, like <laughs> you're getting assaulted left and right. Like there would be a million reports. Should so that's on. why they kind of like claimed that. Okay. But I kind of think they could have done the fatality stuff, right? I mean, other countries track that too. Death is death. So uh, I don't know if that's much of an excuse. I think I think it's harder for them to track. I mean, I keep on in the back of my head remembering that 40% of Uber rides are settled in cash. And it's like... Uber is much less sort of automated and centralized in other countries than it is in the U.S. I mean, the number of cash-settled Uber rides in the U.S. I think is zero. I think <laughs> I, I think no one does it, but it's very, very common in the rest of the really? world. Yeah, yeah, that's what advocates said. Also, is like, um, like if you get assaulted in some of the categories, like on the subway, you're not going to complain about it. Like you're just going to go on with your life, right? Mm-hmm. We know this, but like Uber, there's a record, time, place, everything. It's all. You don't have to do anything. And you just now they made it easier. You could just press a button and complain about it. Um, my point is just that the tech makes it easier for these complaints to happen. And what you're saying would make it harder in, in the rest of the world. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fractured me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I want to talk about Manchester City Football Club. I, as regular listeners to Slate Money will know, I am not a sports person. <laughs> uh, my friend Noah Breyer in his wonderful Why Is This Interesting email described me a couple of days as a sports ignoramus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that posited this Manchester City deal is super interesting. Silver Lake, which is a Silicon Valley technology investor, or at least used to be a technology investor up until a couple of years ago, has invested $500 million in the parent company of Manchester City, which is called City Football Group, I think, at a $4.8 billion valuation, which is makes it pretty much the most valuable sports team on the planet. Second most. Well, I mean, the, the only question, the, the only question is whether the Dallas Cowboys are worth more than $4.8 billion. And since Jerry Jones isn't selling, we don't know. Fine. But it's a massive valuation for, like, Man City, who, like, when I was growing up, were not exactly considered a major football team. <laughs> and the thing that really fascinates me is this is not hashtag billionaire whimsy. <laughs> this, is, this is not Stevie Cohen coming in and saying, I want to buy the New York Mets because I am very rich and I can afford them. And so there were no more Damien Hurst pieces to buy. (laughs) $2.6 billion 
um, $2 billion for a majority share at a $2.6 billion valuation. That's clearly just like still Steve Ballmer buying whatever that team was in Los Angeles. Was it Clippers? Clippers, yeah. That's just, you know, when you have too much money, what you do is you buy a sports team. This is not that. This is Silver Lake who has like limited partners who are paying 2 and 20 and they expect to see like a 3x return on their $500 million investment. So my question for you, Anna, is how on earth does Silver Lake make a 3x return when it's buying in at a $4.8 billion valuation? That's a very good question. I mean, I think partly this is, you know, they have an overall kind of entertainment strategy, right? There, there are lots of different types of entertainment companies, and this is supposed to kind of fit in. And I believe what they're they're also doing is they're buying a lot of like, they have like smaller or like in like a lower level clubs as well. And so it's kind of the idea that these are all going to work together. Right. Like so you, right. City Football Group owns, I think, seven football teams around the world, including the New York City Football Club. And the idea is that whatever they've perfected at Man City with their style of play and their sports medicine and their youth development teams and all of this kind of stuff, they can then take that expertise and apply it to Melbourne and to New York and to all of these other teams that they own. Right. And whether that will actually work is a very big question. Uh, But it's also, you know, say you have athletes who are good, but they're not quite ready for the big leagues. You can also potentially have them play in some of these lower-level leagues as well. You know, it can all kind of work. Move them around the world. I thought that sounded kind of genius. And I I was like, why why don't the Yankees buy the other teams with names? Cardinal? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I think because baseball is not an international sport in the same way that soccer is. But like the idea that, because it it feels like this this company operates like like a sports league, but it has so much, it has more power and and strength to, you know. Well, they they never have more than one team in any given country. Right. And I believe like, and don't a lot of MLB like control some of their, their minor leagues that are connected with them. Yeah. Right. They control, so it's similar there, to that. They might be each rules. control like one minor league team, though. There's not like yeah, a Yeah, but I, they're, they're also franchise. different leagues have different amounts of power over what you can and can't own. And I think by restricting yourself to one team per country, uh-huh. you manage to get around all of those that rules about like you can't own two teams and that kind of thing. It's be a conflict of interest. But like to your point, Anna, you're right that Silver Lake, this is just part of their broader media entertainment push, which includes Endeavor, which bought William Morris. It's this big talent agency, also bought Miss Universe. And what's fascinating to me is that this idea of tech, and we were talking about this when we were talking about Alphabet, you know, Alphabet is YouTube, it's entertainment. Technology is now media, it's advertising, it's entertainment. And sports is a huge part of that entertainment economy and it on some level i guess i understand what silver lake is doing here is they're trying to say well this bit of the entertainment economy the the media the talent agencies the miss universe pageant the manchester cities all of this kind of stuff hasn't become rolled up scaled professionalized in the way that much of the rest of the technology world has and so that's our big bet i just don't entirely see how they're going to make money at it. No, I mean, I'll agree with you on that. I mean, I, but I, I do think it's interesting because, right, like even what you were saying with Man City, like growing up, you would never have thought they would have become what they became now. And part of that is because of this kind of the Premier League has become so globalized. So I guess there's also that idea if you can kind of bring some of these other teams up too to kind of, you would never think now that of what they could become in 10, 15 years. So I don't know if maybe that's part of the idea that you just have such a bigger global audience for soccer now. Right. I suppose the idea would be that 
you know, there's been this perennial dream in the United States that soccer is going to become a major spectator sport. It's been a huge participation sport for decades, but it, like people don't watch whatever league. I don't even know the name of the league. Yeah. But if it if they ever do, if it ever reaches the point where the U.S. league becomes half as big as the English league or the Italian league or the German league or the Spanish league, then it is fair to assume that New York City Football Club will be near the top of that league and will be worth you know, more than a billion dollars on its own. Well, agreed. And also, I mean, obviously, soccer has always been so big in the rest of the world outside the U.S. as well. So, you know, that's already like an enormous market that you can, you know, with some of these teams. But but I do think that's right, that as of yet, no one's quite been able to figure out how to get Americans to watch soccer. And women seem to be able to do it a little bit better than men because <laughs> um, they play better. But I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think part of it is that there just aren't enough breaks. Americans like sports with breaks. This is my theory. Well, no, it's, not, it's not the Americans. It's the TV companies. Yeah, I mean, but the, you can the, put the it purpose, in. The purpose of the break is to run ads and make money. If you're a TV company and you are faced with a choice between running a basketball game where there's an ad every five minutes or a soccer game where there's no ads for 45 minutes straight, you are going to choose the basketball game because it's just that much more lucrative No, for and you. actually, as you're saying that now, I'm going to probably kind of go back on what I just said because, <laughs> no, no, I will just say that because like literally I was watching a lot of sports last week and we were watching everything on tape delay. Which is wonderful because then you can get through a game really quickly because you just fast forward through all the advertisements and all the like you know, referees looking at the play to see what actually happened. So I don't know. I mean, but but the only way that the sport takes off is if there is money to be made from it. And the only way there is going to be money to be made of it if is if there are advertisers. And except for somehow there seems to be no shortage of money in England or Spain or Italy or Brazil or Germany or all these other places with soccer leagues and they don't put breaks in the middle of their games. Right, but they also have existed for so long and they've clearly figured out other ways to monetize it. And granted, maybe you could do that here, but I mean, this is how Americans increasingly consume sports. They consume them from their living rooms. So. Right. I, I think that's true. Well, I don't think that's increasing. I think that's always been the case. But I do think there's a secular trend away from ad-supported television and towards um, subscription TV, like, you know, Netflix, um, HBO, all of the, you know, Disney Plus. And as that trend continues, and ESPN is certainly a large part of the Disney strategy, I think the requirement for sports to monetize through advertising goes down. And the ability for people to enjoy watching sports on television at home does no lo- no longer requires feeding them lots of ads because there are lots of other ways you can just get them to pay $5 a month or whatever. It's possible, although I guess I would just say that one of the reasons that sports are still considered you know, this kind of um, really valuable commodity is because it's one of the things people still tend to watch live, right? Sure. But the only reason that that's valuable is if you can feed them ads. <laughs> like, why, 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 I, I don't understand that at all. Why is it more valuable? Why, why is it, why isn't ad, sorry, let me repeat that. I don't understand that at all. Like, you are watching a sport live and you are willing to pay for it, either, you know, with cash. If you're watching a sport live and you're willing to pay for that with cash, then that's a great revenue stream for whoever owns that sport, whether or not they can serve an ad in the middle of it. But if I'm watching it actually live, I can't do what I did last week and fast forward to the ads. Sure. 
So, yes, it is possible that if you got a subscription model the same way you had like boxing or whatever, that that worked on a larger scale and everyone was just paying, then maybe that could work. But as of right now, the reason that they're considered valuable is because more people are going to watch them live than almost any other type of thing. And so they're going to almost certainly then watch the ads because they can't fast forward through them. Like the Super Bowl is the biggest advertising. Right, exactly. Th- there is there is this the idea that US. ads are more valuable if people don't fast forward. <laughs> people them. watch them. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, I mean, it's it's funny. I've seen um, surveys, like, which cast a little bit of doubt on that. And, the, like, the amount of brand value you get by fast forwarding through an ad is actually not much lower than if you get if you actually watch the ad but certainly advertisers seem to prefer <laughs> to to show ads that people are going to be watching and so that does increase the value of the ads i just think that in terms of soccer the big hope of soccer is uh spectator sport in the United States is 100% on television. It's 100% people watching at home. I just don't think it's going to be ad-supported. I think the future of television is not as much less ad-supported than it has ever been. And the future of soccer in particular is not going to be ad-supported because, you know, it's 45 minutes straight and you're not, you can't put an ad in the middle of a, you know, 45 minutes of football. As opposed to actual football, you can put an ad every three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nothing's yeah. going to ever be like football in the U.S. Soccer is just never <laughs> no, going to... Uh, no. That time is over. Let's have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? I have a number. What's your number? My number is 30. Okay. 30 seconds, that is. That's how long the Peloton ad was. <laughs> <laughs> the Peloton ad! Was it really 30 seconds? It felt like an hour. <laughs> so, for those of you who, I guess, might not know, this Peloton ad went viral this week featuring the Peloton wife who <laughs> gets a Peloton for Christmas she's from her husband. She's very excited And about she's this. super excited, but then she's very afraid <laughs> to take her first class, even though she's, I don't know if she's fit, but she's quite thin. And... Um, but it's like, how is she so excited to get a Peloton if she's never actually done a Peloton class right. before? How does she know it so good? Everybody, well, everyone knows about Peloton. Oh, okay. And uh, so this ad, I guess it came out in November to not many people noticed it. And then someone tweeted But then media it, Twitter noticed it. Media Twitter, it went viral. Allegedly, the company's stock went down because of it this ad. It went down 13% in two days. <laughs> well, but how did the, how much did the entire market go down? In those no, days? the market was going not up. Not by as much. The point is the the stock. I actually looked at this because it made no sense to me at all. I couldn't believe that an ad would cause it. how liquid is stock that stock? To, it's a liquid stock. But what people don't tell you is that between early October and you know Tuesday of this week, the stock had gone up from twenty dollars to thirty six dollars, and then it went back down right. to thirty. So there was an element of just kind of what goes up must go down. But there was definitely this amazing phenomenon whereby the ad has no effect on anything until it gets noticed by Twitter, at which point it causes the stock to plunge, which was hilarious. I, I mean, story. yeah, I guess people were taking it so far that, again, I defended Uber earlier, and now I'm like, listen, the ad was fine. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. I See, I had the same thought. I was like, granted, I feel like if it hadn't okay. been... Oh, my God, Jessamine. All right, we're going to bring Jessamine in here. <laughs> Jessamine, what did you make of the Peloton ad? So Jessamine Molly has a point that the title of the ad is The Gift That Gives Back. And the implication being that if you give your wife a Peloton, then you get a return in the form of a hotter wife or something like that. See, my assumption is that, okay, I feel like (laughs) if the ad had been done and it just hadn't been a gift from a guy to a girl, 
it would have been completely different. Like, I feel like if it had just been like a woman buys herself this or whatever. And I think that was the problem that they should have thought that through. And also the fact that she was thin at the beginning and thin at the end, if anything, I feel like any different. Well, no, but that's my whole point. If anything, I feel like that makes it less body shamey. It's not like they were like, oh, I, you know, I need to fix my body. She's like, no, I'm just want to work out. You know what I mean? Like, why did she make a video? Maybe that's the giving back is the video that she gives back to her husband of her well, uh, getting up at 5 a.m. The the other... <laughs> I mean, maybe it wasn't a good ad, but I feel the, like... The other thing is that anyone who watched <laughs> season one of Black Mirror will remember the the bike episode where, like, you, you have to bike to get 15 million credits. Uh-huh. And anyone who's seen that episode of Black Mirror is just going to like, be terrified by I this ad. I wrote Black Mirror on my index card to talk about this number, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, P.S., my husband and I maybe want a bike for a joint Christmas gift because we want one. And we were looking at Pelotons. And I just have to say, they're quite expensive. They are it's insanely absurd. expensive. They're $2,245. Yeah. And then you have to pay $39 a month for yeah. the classes. That is crazy. Exercise bikes aren't that expensive. They are a commodity. Like They are all exactly the same. And there is absolutely no reason why you should buy a Peloton bike rather than any one of the 87 identical other bikes. And in fact, a lot of the competitors are not only cheaper, but better. Like, for instance, I know a tiny little bit about exercise bikes. Don't ask me why. One of the things that you want to be able to do in an exercise class is is make them harder or easier over the course course. of the exercise class. And (laughs) on a Peloton, you do that the old-fashioned way, which is you reach down and there's a little knob and you rotate it to the right and you rotate it to the left. And with all of these newfangled ones, they just do that automatically. And you don't need to twiddle anything. So I'm like, (laughs) why not use one of those if it's cheaper? So all Peloton has is marketing, and they fuck that up. Maybe. Although we've just given them a really long ad. Exactly. So it's a fair point. Anna, Um, what is your um, My number number? is (laughs) 137,000. Okay. Okay. So the Tuesday before Thanksgiving— Duke's basketball team was oh, wow. beat by this uh, lower-level team, the Stephen F. Austin Lumberjacks. What? What? Yes. So, but the thing that's amazing about this is there is a player. That's really good. There's a player on this team who— The, the Stephen F. Austin Lumberjacks. Lumberjacks yes. Okay. Who is from the Bahamas, and the university had set up this GoFundMe for his family because their home and, like, a church was destroyed in Hurricane Dorian. And before this game, it had $2,000. By the Friday after this game, it had $137,000 because everybody hates Duke. And so all these people (laughs) were giving money because he scored the winning basket to beat Duke. That's amazing. Wow. Say the name of the team again. The Stephen F. Austin Lumberjacks. Where are they from? Are they a a university team? Mm -hmm. What's the university? Stephen F. Austin. (laughs) Is it Stephen with a PH? Yes. I knew that. I wow. felt it. There's, so, okay. And <laughs> I, I have now learned many things, including the fact that there is a university called Stephen F. Austin University. I like Texas. that their team is the Lumberjacks. Agreed. It's not yeah. offensive. Do they wear like Lumberjack shirts? I don't think so. My number is 66 million, which is the number of bottles of gin that were sold in the United Kingdom in 2018, which is, I mean, is that a lot? 66 million is like, the population of the United Kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) This is a rise of 41% in one year. What's going on? Gin, 
has taken over the UK. Gin is now like, there's a new gin resurgence. It, there was a big gin thing in Spain for many years, but the Spanish don't drink nearly as much as the English do. The English know how to drink, and the English are drinking gin. Is there some other alcohol that people aren't drinking as much? To... Probably beer. How how do they drink it? With tonic? That is the normal way to drink gin, yeah. <laughs> but and, and, and one of the reasons why gin is taking off is that there is a resurgence in tonic as well. It used to be that you had the choice of like Schweppes or Schweppes. And now <laughs> there are a million artisanal tonics of that you course. get to experiment with. Oh, I bet that's good. I would be interested in tasting some artisanal tonic. Maybe we will have an artisanal tonics edition <laughs> of, of Slate Money. So yeah, I think, on which note, I think we will wrap this episode up. We're going to have a Slate Plus on why is Donald Trump picking on Argentina? If you are a Slate Plus listener, enjoy that. If you're not, thank you for listening to Slate Money and thank you to Jasmine Molly for producing. We will be back next week with another episode of Slate Money. 